Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Look at my butt. Now look at my front butt. career. 
but one of the big reasons that I really uh, appreciate Frank Henenlotter is he was one of the founding members of Something Weird Video, along with uh, Mike Rainey and, uh, uh, oh, who else was there? Uh, there was a third in, third investor, but... Uh, uh, the third it's guy always was that. the one who owned H.G. Uh, Lewis film. Yeah, I always forget... I, I always get so spacey when we're on the air. I have this information just sitting in my head all the time. And then when we actually start to record, I just lose it. But anyway, the point is. um, Oh, we can't forget forget Mike's wife, too. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Uh, Stacy, is her name Stacy Percucci? Percucci. yeah, Lisa yeah. for Tuesday. Yeah. Lisa, yeah, you're right, Lisa. Yeah. Even though she's so probably they, sitting outside going, you fuckers are running my name, you fangling. <laughs> <Wow." laughs> right? I know. I think we're both friends with her on Facebook, right? So she's right now, she's like, you yeah. friggin' asshole. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Something weird so, was one of the biggest bootleg outfits before they went, before he went legit. Yeah, and Have you heard I love the story love of how he went legit. Is that no, I don't know how he. Selling? He got well, he busted, got busted with... selling one of Dave Friedman's movies, and Friedman walked up and says, "Hey, I think you're selling bootlegs of my movie," and he's like, "Uh, okay." Uh, I'd like to buy some of your titles and distribute them legally. And you know what convinced uh, Dave Friedman? The first guy in royalty. After that, he's like, okay, I'm with you. Um, (laughs) Right? Yeah, that's funny. And after Frank Henenlotter did his uh, movies for uh, Shapiro Clickenhouse, he ended up joining... Barney and them over at something weird. Yep. Right. Yeah, and and they they actually like one of the things that I love so much about both him and Dave Friedman, as you mentioned before, is that they actually went out and actively sought out copies of films that had been out of print, lost movies, I guess, is what you would call them. That's what say now, you know, lost films. But, I mean, I have hundreds of something weird video VHS tapes and DVDs, and the reason why is because it's such an amazing catalog of of films that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, you know, if you if you're not a fan of something weird video, if you're listening right now and you're not already a fan, just go on their website. Uh, they currently burn DVDs to order, so uh, they don't keep a back catalog. You better hurry up. Yeah, right? They, they currently do not keep a back catalog on hand, but they burn a DVD to order, and they'll put all the artwork and everything in there, too. So... It'll be 
just like a DVD that you would buy at the store or a Blu-ray that you would buy at the store. But, yeah, uh, I don't know. Hopefully they'll survive into the next, uh, you know, into the next years. But it's hard to say with no, small I, press. No, I'm telling you, and I'm being literal. Uh, Lisa has said that he's shutting down the burn-on-demand service from him. At the end of this year, she's tired of keeping it up. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike died last year. Was it last year that he died? Yeah, I think it was last year or a couple years ago. I still can't watch that, uh, the burlesque movie they did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, this uh last week um this doesn't have well it doesn't have something to do directly with a movie company but uh phantom of the video scope passed away this week anyone who's a fan of uh b movie literature i always bought a copy of the video scope when uh they cut back to four times a year uh a few years ago but Yep, the old the Phantom passed away uh, within the last couple of weeks. I think it was last week. So I don't know if someone's gonna take. I don't know if someone's gonna take over that magazine or if it's uh, if that's gonna be in the. What's that? They haven't seen it. Phantom of the movies, the The video scope. Magazines that we grew up with and left and shot cinema. What what old school magazine do you do you mean? One of those that came from the eighties and nineties boom. The only one that's left is shot cinema. Oh yeah, yeah. I still I still buy shock cinema when it when it comes around. They sell it at one store around here. But yeah, it's it's not easy to find. But I still buy it. Well Frank Kenwater's first film's impossible to see and that's not because it's lost, it's Frank Kenwater owns it and he thinks it's because it's never coming out. Well, like most people, my first Hen and Lauder film was Basket Case. Um, yeah. You know, if anyone listening has never seen Basket Case, you should probably stop what you're doing and go see Basket Case. It's a, it's a great, I mean, yeah, it's a cheesy horror movie, but, you know, it shares a lot with uh, another director that I'm going to talk about later when it comes to first films. Um, low budget, but a lot of imagination. So, um, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot and, of shots of just uh, Dwayne walking up and down the deuce, and that's because Frank knew that 42nd Street was dying out, and he wanted to capture as much of it as he can on film. 
One of the funniest yeah, moments love- is when uh, Dwayne's walking down the street and an actual drug dealer walks up to him and tries to sell him drugs. <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, man, want some pot, want some weed, want some pills, want some uppers, want some downers, want some LSD. Oh, fuck <laughs> right? man. Then he just walks up. <laughs> what the hell? Uh, I I I love that. Uh, I love a, a, any old movie uh, from the seventies that you know seventies and eighties that has that any of that footage of Forty Second Street back before it got Disney fied. I mean, there's so much cool stuff there. Uh, again, I'll talk about it a little bit later when we get to one of our other directors, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hen and Water followed up Basket Case with Brain Damage, which is a very bizarre movie. I know you've seen it. Um but for people who haven't seen it, yeah, it's a very bizarre film. Um it's one of those one of things like anti drug movies I've ever seen. <laughs> right? Yeah, it'll definitely uh yeah, it'll definitely make you never want to do drugs, says the guy who just smoked pot before he got on the podcast. But anyway, <laughs> uh, allegedly, yeah. Yeah, I, allegedly, I allegedly smoked pot before the uh, before the podcast. Um, it's a very bizarre film about uh, kind of like a leech creature. Uh, would Would you say that's uh, Accurate. It, it, Almer. Yeah, Almer. Is, yeah, looks, looks like a deformed Yeah, he's kind of like a leech. He attaches himself to your brain stem and secretes a drug into your brain, and then you become addicted to it. But you're also under his. You're under his control. Right, and so, yeah, it's kind of weird because he controls one person's brain because he wants that person to kill other people for him, but then once once the the main character kills the other people, he just gets out and eats their brains and goes back into his body. Like, why wasn't he just able to eat? Why wasn't he just able to eat the main character's brain and then just move on to the next body and eat that brain? Uh, I don't know why he needed to manipulate a human to. He can't walk. <laughs> he can't walk. That's true. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. He needed a ride, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> Ass, grass, or brains, man. Oh, yeah. 
I thought you dropped off. I couldn't hear you. You're yeah. you were kind of oh. you were kind of cutting out. No, you were kind of cutting out. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah. we seen it in the cut version for Paramount, and we still loved it. That's how good the movie was. Yeah. Right. Oh, you do need to get the, get the arrow disc of it so you can get to see the infamous blowjob scene in it. Some uncut for uncut glory. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh. And that is when he got his uh, three picture deal with uh, Shapiro Flickenhouse film, where he did back to was. Real world. And I was uh, like, real world. Yeah. Not as popular film as 
more popular for Peggy Wallen came online was uh, Thunderpad. Nope. <clears throat> and that would be Franken Hooker. <laughs> right? I like Franken Hooker, but every since it didn't really. John Oscar Keyman was being a Republican and just being an asshole for the fans. <laughs> yeah. Frankenhooker is a bit, I mean, obviously it's tongue-in-cheek, but, I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's a weird movie. There's no two ways about it. Like, I, I understand that maybe he was going more for, like, a comedy angle than, than he had before, yeah. but, but, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a it's a strange film. Uh, there's not a lot of internal logic to it, which I mean I understand. You know, I I have this argument. Uh, like my wife and I have this friendly argument because I watch mystery science theater all the time, and so you know, one of the lyrics to the Mystery Science Theater theme song is, you know, repeat to yourself, it's just a show, you should really just relax. And so when I'm sitting here watching a movie and I start to get all critical of it because it doesn't have the internal logic that I want a film to have, that's basically what Abby says to me. You know, you should repeat to yourself, it's just a show, you should really just relax, which is true. It's true, <laughs> like, yeah. but it's still, you know, as a film fan and a and a you know TV addict, I do still freak out a lot. And yeah, I Frankenhooker is a fun movie to watch, no doubt about it. But the internal logic doesn't flow with me, and so I kind of like, I don't know. It's one of those movies I How put on. How can you not like a movie with super crack? <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying it's probably, you know, it's on the low end of my Frank Henenlotter films, you know. I mean, it's my one of those movies. bad biology because eh, more of an R-rated rugged man film than a Frank Henenlotter film. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, it definitely feels like a more polished version. Like one of the things that makes the earlier Hen and Lauder film so much fun is that, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, him filming on 42nd street. Uh, well, yeah, even the, you know, stuff that wasn't filmed on 42nd street still had that grimy, you know, midtown appeal from, from that era. You know, um, bad biology definitely feels like a polished Hollywood version of, uh, of what Hen and Lauder was, would have done, you know? So, all right. And before bad bio, well, he's done three documentaries, two which are great, which was quick. And one is H.G. Lewis, The Godfather of Gore, which was a great, 
great senior year this year. Yeah. And, and yeah, then he did that uh, for last, which is kind of hard to watch. Not because it's a bad movie. It's a good movie. It's just knowing that Dave Freeman and Barney would be dead within maybe a year of filming it. And the main reason they made the movie is so they could just have one more one more ounce of film with Freeman uh, on the screen before he died. Right. And then he did his scariest movie, which is the Mike Diana Dies documentary. And if you know that case, that's some scary, scary, real scary shit. No, I, I I saw that on his filmography when we were preparing for this show. I have never seen that movie. What What's the story with this guy? Well, he was making underground comics in Florida, and because the prosecutor was being a real dick and it was election year, got him put into jail. One, and branded a pedophile. Two, and to come invade his house anytime they wanted, looking to make sure he's not drawing comics. And he couldn't go near his nieces and nephews because he was because he was labeled a sex offender over a comic book. Shit. I better get some of my comic yeah. books out of my house. Well, yeah, it's a great documentary, and this whole story is just horrifying. I mean, the fact that they can huh. do that back then, but it is Florida. Well, yeah, I had never heard of I had never heard of that before this afternoon when I was looking at some information for our show. But yeah, I've never heard of that. All right. Who do you want to talk yeah, about now? I think it's pretty much retired. Uh, well, you said you like Eternal Logic in your movie, and I like the other one. There is no such thing as Eternal Logic in any of his movies, which I love. There's no such thing as what? In, internal Logic in a Jonah. Oh, yeah. Wanda <laughs> uh. and Mel Topo, his masterpiece, in my opinion, The Holy Mountain, to everyone's favorite when you get a commentary back on Halloween and a Santa Sangre, to the two autobiographical films. Right. Uh, and you need to find a way to see the rainbow scene. Just seeing uh, Christopher Lee and Joe DeWarski working together. Yeah, we, you know what? The very first uh, podcast that we ever did together was about Joe DeWarski. And yeah. we, talked a, we talked a lot about, uh, about his films. And yeah, um, 
I wouldn't say that there's no internal logic to his films. Um, yeah, there, I mean, you know, um, I'm a big fan of overlapping genres when a director can really, uh, make it work. And Jodorowsky had that ability, um, with films like, well, I'll give him El Topo. I mean, it was a Western, but it was also a very, like, you know, it was like El Topo was like the early version of Easy Rider. Like, you know, just a man looking to. Yeah, okay. But you know what I'm saying, though. You can see the parallel yeah. I'm drawing there. Yeah. It's yeah. got the same type of mentality, you know, just like someone yeah, looking. Yeah, right. And, but yeah, I'll give you the Holy Mountain, man. There's not a lot of internal logic there. That movie just kind of, you can't even say that the Holy Mountain flies off the rails. It's kind of like already off the rails when it starts. It's just a bizarre movie all the way around. And uh, I know you did a whole show about it last week, but uh, my favorite of all of his movies is uh, Santa Sangri. Uh, I've always loved that movie. And again, that one leans into one of the other directors that I was going to talk about tonight. Uh, You know, uh, just the whole... Uh, you know, uh, freak show ideals and the fact that, you know, the whole, the whole weird relationship between the son and the, the mother. It's a really interesting film from a lot of different angles and definitely my favorite of his. And I don't know, he's, he's a maniac. That's for sure. He definitely had some, Weird ideas, but I mean that's what makes that's what makes art, you know. And what's your next? Well, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Cohen brothers. What do you feel about that? Yeah, they were good. Weird how they started out as uh, Sam Raimi uh, right? Yeah, yeah. They were friends with uh, they were friends with Sam Raimi, and they worked uh, they worked with him on a bunch of on a bunch of movies. Uh, I guess well earlier like uh, earlier like project. I think. I think they all went to college together, right? Because, yeah, because yeah, they worked earlier with him uh, helping out with with his projects before they went off and did their own thing. Um, yeah. I mean, everyone knows that they've become really uh, successful as directors. I don't I don't really care much for some of their work. 
Uh, I do like them a lot, but um, there's some stuff that I think is kind of goofy. Uh, their their first uh, film, Blood Simple, I think has an interesting twisty plot that kind of shows where they were headed as writers and directors, but it's got some goofy scenes in it that I didn't really care for. Um, I think you and I have talked about this. I think you and I have talked about this before about like last house on the left, uh, you know, uh, you know, where uh, last house on the left has the potential to be just like one of the sleaziest, most despicable, violent, horror films of all time but then for some reason it well it is but it cuts away to those two like goofy sheriffs all the time with the like that was uh west craven thinking that he yeah oh god this is too sleepy and dark i need to add some comic relief yeah and that was screwed up That was a bad choice. The the comic relief does does nothing for that film. I I don't know. I all I can I can watch it with the volume off, and all I hear is the friggin' Benny Hill music whenever those two cops come on. Yeah. Um. But okay, so I'm gonna skip ahead and mention uh, my favorite. Coen Brothers movie is Barton Fink. Uh, what do you think about that? You, I, you've seen Barton Fink, right? Uh, John Turturro, mm-hmm. John Goodman. Yeah. 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 Pretentiousness or that, pretentiousness sake? I don't, I mean, I think that's kind of the point of it, though, because, you know, uh, he you know, Barton is supposed to be kind of a pretentious ass. And, you know, he, it's, it's kind of a tenant of the, of the plot, you know, he's, he's a pretentious ass. And then he meets John Goodman's character who spoiler alert for a movie that's you know, 30 years old, if you haven't seen it yet, sucks to be you. Uh, John Goodman's character is a serial killer and I think I think that's the whole point of the movie is that you know you're looking at two different sides of the same the same coin uh John Turturro's character is so desperate to make it as a writer in Hollywood but he doesn't have the wherewithal to actually put in the work whereas John Goodman's character, a salesman who, you know, is happy to just go from hotel to hotel to hotel uh, while he does his rounds and he just murders people in the meantime, you know, to, you know. Really, how sad is it that we get to see it more nowadays out in the open than we did back then is where – Hollywood would take guys with some talent like Barton Fink to direct a little thing that people love, and then they put them on these big bullshit projects which basically kills them. Oh, right. your place. It was a great thing on the whole political movie and all that. Let's have you <laughs> a freaking wrestling picture. Uh, right. 
could kind of direct a play, so or you could kind of write a play. Yeah, he's in Barton Fink. He doesn't even direct the play; he just wrote it, and then yeah, and then he gets swept off to Hollywood. So, um, yeah, but yeah, that's what Hollywood know. does. It, it chews you up and grinds you out. Those first movies were all great. I said, you know, Blood Simple was really well written. Uh, there were just some scenes in it that I thought were kind of corny. Uh, Raising Arizona uh, is a it's a funny movie. It's goofy, but it's, it's a, fun. It's a Sam Raimi film. Let's not bullshit. Raising yeah, Arizona right. is a Sam Raimi film. Yeah, that's that's definitely uh, Sam Raimi and like uh, the. Cohen Brothers and Sam Raimi cohabitated and uh, worked together for the first years of all of their careers. I mean, so... I like uh, Crime Wave. Most people don't, but I like Crime Wave. Again, I think it's I kind of like a lead goofy... actor in it. What? Yeah. Okay. I hated uh, the lead actor because he was an idiot. But Paul... Right. W. Smith and uh, Byron, Brian, Byron James are fucking amazing in that movie. Right? Yeah. Crime Wave uh, reminds me a lot of uh, I think we've talked about this before. Um, oh, what's the uh, uh, what's the Scorsese movie? Where, uh, oh, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, it was one of his first movies, uh, for Christ's sake, After Hours, uh, yeah. Oh, after hours, yeah. Yeah. After I love hours it, but it's too mean for its own good after hours. Right. It's just too mean. Right. Cohen Brothers, it would be Miller's Crossing. Yeah, Miller's Crossing is a great film, actually. Uh I was in a just way, thinking that's about the first film where they came into their own. Yeah. Oh yeah. It it definitely has a tone to it that they hadn't achieved up until that point. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Because even the comedies that they did after that, I mean, like I said, Blood Simple has some goofy scenes in it that kind of throw me out of the story. Raising Arizona is fun, but like you said, it really has the uh it really has the smell of Raimi all over it. Uh but yeah. Notice Crossing is when they really kinda came into that uh vibe because the first comedy that they did after Miller's Crossing I think was the the Hudsucker proxy, which is one of their most underrated films, but even though it has the comedy sensibility, uh, 
it still has that same tone. It still has that same look as Miller's Crossing. It still has that same kind of authority. Like, yeah, they took a, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. They took authority of the style that they wanted to have for their films, you know? Yeah, but yeah, but the Hudsucker's Posse was still written by Sam Raimi, and it has that Sam Raimi-ism that makes me not like some of his sillier stuff. Yeah. Well, a Hudsucker Proxy is one of my least favorite Coen Brothers films. I was just uh, bouncing off what you said about how Miller's Crossing was where they kind of found their own vibe. And I was thinking more, you know, since we're talking in terms of directors and direction, I was thinking yeah. more in terms of, you know, it, they, it still has the look of a Coen Brothers movie. But you're right. Yeah, Sam Raimi did write it, and it does have uh, kind of a goofy Sam Raimi feel. But, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. And if I was going the most underrated, it probably would be The Man Who Wasn't There. That movie is better than people give it credit for. That movie is my favorite Coen Brothers movie, aside from Barton Fink. I the problem I love with that it movie. is that it came out right after No Country for Old Men, didn't it? No, I it came out right after Oh Brother Where Art Thou and that was their biggest oh, yeah, hit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, people mean, were expecting another Oh Brother War out there, not a very grim and dark noir, which it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, hey, oh that. I went in yeah. that movie with song and dancing and stuff. What's wrong here? <laughs> the irony is that uh, that movie also came out after The Big Lebowski, which at the time was the Coen Brothers' biggest flop, and now it's like found such a huge cult following that it's one of their biggest hits. You know, like I don't know. People just don't know how to appreciate I don't like good Lebowski, but I didn't like how it really just meandered. It really didn't have a plot. I mean, that's kind of the point. The main character is a stoner who, you know, gets, you know, kind of wrapped up in, a, you know, a whole conspiracy that he did not create. So... I think that was kind of the point of it. It's it's a fun movie. Um, what what uh, oh see now now I'm trying to come up with another movie that I can't think of the name of. Uh, I'm I told you I. If I don't thought. pick the worst, I would probably pick a serious man. There was that movie was just. I had actually I had actually never watched that film until a couple of uh weeks ago. Uh Abby and I were looking for a movie to watch and it was on one of our streaming platforms and I said, "Hey, here's a uh here's a Coen Brothers movie I've never watched." And so we clicked on it. Yeah, I fell asleep before it was over. Uh it definitely definitely uh, didn't do much for me. I mean, I get it. 
I get what they were going for, but it yeah, it just wasn't mm. much for me. And the later stuff, I mean, they can pull. Burn without reading was eh. Hell Caesar. Eh. Yeah, I think I think the the after a serious man. I thought their remake of True Grit was pretty good. Um, yeah, that I, one was good. Yeah, uh, I don't think there was anything that they did for it that they couldn't that any other director couldn't have done for it you know what I mean like it there wasn't anything that was specific to like for instance No Country for Old Men which had that kind of modern western vibe to it the Cohen yeah. Cohen brothers gave, gave it some of their own flavor you know like no one else could have done yeah you know, no one else could have done that the way they did it. But True Grit, it was a good movie, but if someone else could have directed it, and it would have been just as enjoyable. And I mean, if they had the same cast, obviously. So, all right. Let's talk about another one of your favorites. Who you said, you know, how you said, no country, no men. They did it, but someone else said. Let's talk about Whoops. <laughs> yeah, I lost you. But let's talk about Jim Jarmusch, who's done that like he's made his western like no time with old men. He's made his zombie movie. He's made his samurai movie. But he made his. Yeah. Uh, I love, like, Jim Jarmusch is one of those directors that, you know, if you're, if you're a, like I was I was a teenager when I first discovered his films and you know I was a weirdo punk rock kid who read comic books and rode a skateboard and you know but you know like was also the kind of kid who laid around and wrote poetry and read read a lot and Jim Jarmusch is is one of those directors that if he comes along at that time in your life it's kind of perfect for you you know like all of a sudden you're just like oh here's another guy in the world who must have a lot of the same sensibilities as me you know so yeah I've always been in love with all of his stuff. Um, my favorite movie of his is uh, Dead Man. And like you said, he did his own... Every movie that he does is on a certain style. 
and Dead Man is his take on the Western. Yeah, and it's good because he didn't try to stay within the genre confines. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, he definitely uh, he definitely kind of goes off in his own direction with, well, even like you said, uh, you mentioned Ghost Dog, uh, which is his samurai movie, but that he was actually one of the first, at least American directors, that kind of did the whole samurai movie in modern times thing that, of course, one of my other favorite directors, Tarantino, would do with Kill Bill uh, 1 and 2. But Jim Jarmusch beat him to that. Challenge, 1980. It had four of the seven samurai in it. Uh, right. Yakuza with Robert Mitchum from the 70s. Now, the challenge is right. one you should see, but yeah, you're right. He did his he did his black, you know, he makes the two things like uh, black action films and samurai films, which if you went to the deuce back in the day, you would always see the black audiences love the kung fu and the samurai films and stuff like that. Right. Um, some of the some of the later, uh, or I should say the newer, uh, since he has not yet passed away, thankfully. But uh, yeah, some of the other Jarmusch films haven't really done much for me. Uh, the the latest ones that I've watched, uh, Broken Flowers uh, with Bill Murray, eh, that didn't really do much for me. It kind of felt like a knockoff of, uh, you know, what was the friggin' Sofia Coppola movie with Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson in there. Translation. Yeah, Lost in Translation, which is a movie that I never really cared for. And I know everyone loves Lost in Translation. I never really cared for it. And it has nothing to do with anything in particular except for the overall tone of the movie, I guess, because I love the Virgin Suicide. There's only one reason everyone loves Lost in Translation. That's the opening shot of Scarlett Johansson's ass. (laughs) <laughs> that could be true. That could be true. I do like other Sofia Coppola films. I mean, uh, you know, The Virgin Suicides is one of my favorite movies. I love that, but Yeah, that was so, good. Yeah. But then but her you know her Beguiled, I wanna I I wanna slap her across the face for even trying to remake the Beguiled. Yeah. No, I have not you know, No. No, <laughs> I haven't seen it. Uh, I can't remember. Let's watch I, the original I watched, again. Yeah, I watched one of her more recent films, but I can't remember which one it was. It was again just one of those things that came up on one of my streaming services, so I decided to give it a give it a look see, and I can't I can't remember what it was, but. So either it was so bad that I just 
rejected it or it was good enough that I just kind of accepted it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, moving on to my yeah. mix, who is one of uh, your guy? you just mentioned, Jim Jarmus's biggest heroes when it comes to a director? And Tarantino's, one of his biggest heroes when it comes to a direct director. All right, if I if I had to draw a Venn diagram between Jim Jarmusch and Quentin Tarantino, I'm gonna guess Sam Peckinpah. No, Fuller. <laughs> oh, Samuel Fuller. All right, well that makes sense too. Yeah. <laughs> and between uh, me, uh, Jarmusch and uh, Tarantino, that probably makes three people that I know that actually truly love uh, Sam Fulper's work. <laughs> right? His, his work is so unique and I I so much him that I don't not too many people doesn't have the cult that certain directors have. Right? <clears throat> yeah. I don't know. Um I can honestly say that um, I never really got into Sam Fuller until, uh, because I am such a big comic book nerd, um, when they re-released some of his films on DVD, uh, it's been quite a few years now, but Daniel Cloud did the artwork for Shock Corridor and The Naked Kiss. So I bought those movies just because I wanted the Dan Klaus art. And so that was the first time I think I had ever, I think I had seen uh, maybe like Hell or High Water or some of his earlier stuff, but uh, maybe I shot Jesse James. Uh, I don't think I had seen much of his work before that. But once I saw Shot Corridor and uh, uh, The Naked Kiss, I definitely was like, yeah, I, I got to check this guy out. And you're right. He doesn't have quite. Yeah, he does. Go ahead. Yeah. No. I was just going to reiterate what you said. How much of a slap in the face was it to you the first time you've seen the first three minutes of The Naked Kiss? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just glad that I was a full-grown man when it happened because I I don't know I was just kind of like, all right, well that that just happened. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. one scene from Shop Corridor where it has shows the guy in the KKK outfit talking some of the most racist shit. You have ever heard in your life. Right. <laughs> and then he takes the mask off and it's a black man. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. I don't know. You're right, though. I, You know, I, I never knew that uh, Tarantino was necessarily a big fan of Sam Fuller. I can see it, though. Um they have the same oh. dark sense of humor like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But yeah, the like one I would recommend to you is uh, White Dog, uh, Pick Up on South Street, definitely the Steel Helmet. God damn, that one's good. Huh. Nice. But Pick Up on South Street is great too. It has a Richard Widmark as a pickpocket who ends up stealing microfilm from Russian spies and they're all after him. And he goes to the, and the cops drag him in. He's like, come on, you need to do this for the country. He's like, don't give me that rally around the flag crap and don't and wrap yourself around the flag and give me that kind of crap, buddy. <laughs> and when the steel helmet came out, it pissed off the communists because they considered it a fascist film. But it pissed off Jay Hoover, Jay Edgar Hoover in the FBI, because they called it a communist film. <laughs> Did you just call him Gay Hoover? <laughs> Jay Edgar Hoover. But, and First, I you, thought... have you ever seen Larry Cohen's The Private Life of J. Edgar Hoover? No, I don't think I have. There's a scene in there that shows around the FBI office, and there's this, and this thing that says, Enemies of the FBI, and it's, he's flipping through it. It's got, like, uh, John Lennon, and then it stops for three seconds, and it says Samuel L. Fuller. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Hoover had a folder on him. He hated him. I think he's right? anti American. <laughs> Before he was a filmmaker, he was a soldier and a writer. Before that he was a newspaper man and he takes and he put all of that greedy newspaperness into his booth. Right. Yeah. And now I want to get into a more modern director, which is Ben Wheatley. I love this stuff. Right. Uh, the first one I've seen of his was uh, Kill List, which is pretty good. It's a pretty good version of The Wicker Man. But right. Different. And then Sightseers, yeah. which I thought was silly. And then I've seen A Field in England, which basically just kicked my ass up and down the street. Yeah, we we talked about that one uh on one of our other uh one of our other podcasts. We brought that in. I can't remember if it was one that was about twist endings or something, but yeah. Surrealism. Um Yeah. Surrealism, yeah. Uh my favorite of his movies is High Rise. Man, I love that movie. Like, it's like a High Rise to me kind of feels like, uh, like, uh, oh, what's the movie? Once again, I'm drawing a blank, but you and I both went off about this. What's the one where the guys have to kickbox their way to the top? floor to oh, the kill raid. them. Yeah, the raid. Yeah, yeah. Um, High Rise feels like like a 
like it could take place in the same building after the raid. You know what I mean? Like, like okay, so yeah. now the whole world is kind of falling apart because the, you know, like imagine that the that the main uh, bad guy in the raid was actually the good guy. Like just just project yeah. that, you know. And then once he's gone, you know, it, it's kind of like uh, like Snowpiercer, you know. I mean, we're we're trained from the beginning of the movie to root for the people from the back of the train, um, which, you know, obviously that's how the film was written. But, you know, sometimes you have to look at the – you have to look at a movie from the other person's point of view, you know? Like, what if the people at yeah. the front of the train actually were right, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. you know – so that's kind of how I feel about high rise. And we are, I feel what is I think uh, high rise is a better J.G. Ballard adaption than other adaptions of his work that was made in some of them. I thought was boring and filthy. We'll get into once we get into the director's work in a second. And what if this same director for his first movie took the idea of high rise? But instead of making it about class structure, he made it about parasites that made turn your horny and made you want to screw everything. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking Cronenberg. Yeah. Shivers is option a high rise. Yeah. Yeah. When did you discover so, Cronenberg? Uh, the first Cronenberg movie I ever saw was Videodrome. And it's kind of funny because I hooked up with this girl and she lived in this loft apartment with a bunch of other people. And yeah. they they were all kind of like hipsters that were all into movies and music and stuff. And I ended up going home with this girl one night and, uh, we were making out and hanging out on her bed and she was like, Oh, you should watch this movie. And I was like, okay. And she put on Cronenberg. She put on Videodrome and you know how, there's the whole overt theme of like sadomasochism in Videodrome and there's the part and there's the part where uh, James Woods is making out with uh, Debbie Harry and she's got the slices on her shoulder and he's like who did this to you and she's like oh you know uh, a a friend of mine he he probably liked Videodrome that was kind of what she was doing. She was like, hey, so uh, you getting into this movie? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, oh, well, yeah, yeah. you want to uh, you want to get a little kinky? Or... Yeah. <laughs> so that was my first introduction. That was my first 
introduction to uh to David Cronenberg, but yeah. Um if I had to pick it's hard to pick a favorite David Cronenberg though. I mean Yeah, what 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 was your first Cronenberg movie? Uh Scanners. Yeah, Scanners, yeah. Which obviously everyone remembers because it has the most excellent head explosion of all time. Yeah, which cost him half of his hearing. I want, I, I just watched this last week too. Um, I want to like it more. I, I want to like the dead zone more than I do. Um, it, it just feels like it's kind of, I don't know. Concave. It's hard to, there's something about it. Like, yeah, I just, yeah, it feels outdated. And Christopher Walken, oh, I don't baby. like it. Oh, shit, we got Greg Stokes in the goddamn White House right now, motherfucker. What are you talking about, Al David? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Uh, but of course, the best the fly... thing that's on the movie is uh, the Greg is well, Martin Sheen is Greg Stilson. He's fucking amazing in that movie. Yeah, Martin but if Sheen. You read the book, they cut out a whole lot of the book, which would have made a lot more of the movie made sense. Right, right. Yeah, I just, I just don't really care for. Uh, Christopher Walken's performance in it. I think he seems he feels kind of like wooden and weird and maybe that's the way that Cronenberg told him to play it but I don't know. It just seems weird and then you know, but whatever. Uh, Then of course he followed that up. What was his next movie after that? Was it The Fly or Dead Ringers? The Fly. I can't remember. The Fly, yeah. The Fly, yeah. Well, The Fly is is amazing. I mean, it still feels a little dated just because it has that really 80s look to it when you watch it again. But, I mean, it has great performances. It has uh, amazing special effects for the time. Uh, I think it's yeah. really just the lighting. The lighting makes it – and the – the lighting, the hairstyles, and the uh, and the clothing just kind of really scream '80s at you. But uh, it's still a great movie, and one of the few movies that you could use as an argument for why it's not always a bad idea to do a remake. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean. Oh, and I read yeah. that online they were doing an article on uh, Dawn of the Dead. I want to see what you think about it. They said Dawn of the Dead sucked because the malls look too much like the seventies and the hairdo is too much like the seventies. It's hard to take the movie <laughs> seriously because of how seventies it looks. No, I I think you and I have talked about this before and you know, Dawn of the Dead is one of my all time favorite films. The George Romero well, I'm version. I'm just talking about that whole thing period where people go back and, like, uh, imagine a lot of the 
Cronenberg modern fans and stuff who are used to the A B stuff on the fly going back and looking at Shivers, the Brood, Rabbit, and then right. trying to compare it to the fly, dead ringers and things like that. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it, whether you're talking about remakes or whether you're talking about someone's entire filmography, I mean, I get that. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went to see Mystery Science Theater 3000 live, and uh, we were in the theater, and there were a couple of girls a few rows behind us who were, I would say, probably in their late teens. And they were kind of talking the whole time. And people in the theater kept turning around and shushing them. And, you know, finally they were like, you know what, let's just leave. This isn't even as funny as I thought it was going to be anyway. And, you know, I think I, I kind of put, try to put everything in that perspective that everyone's perception of of what something should look like or what something should be like is based on your personal experiences and yeah, obviously like your age group, you know, I mean, you know, you and I can watch, uh, shivers or rabid or something like that and just kind of be at, at home with the fact that, yeah, okay, that guy's got a mullet, that girl's got a, 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 a perm, you know, and it doesn't take us out of the story because we remember when that was actually a thing, you know, and yeah, but that's why. If you're the kind yeah. of person that's so petty that that will take you out of a movie, then fuck you. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, exactly. That. <laughs> That was the point I was trying to make by telling the story about the two teenage girls who ran out of a yeah. mystery science theater. <laughs> it was uh, like a couple of years ago at uh, Knoxville Horror Fest. They showed zombie. Throughout the first 40 minutes, the kid, the younglings in there were just laughing and giggling at the music. They're like, ah. And then we got to the eyeball in the splinter. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. People got quiet. <laughs> so, I do like the fact that um, while we're talking about Cronenberg, um, I wasn't. I mean, I think Dead Ringers is a is a really good film, just uh, based on the fact that. You know he's got Jeremy Irons playing both characters. That's a that going back to that time in history. Like when did Dead Ringers come out? That was like ninety nine, two thousand, somewhere in that. No, that was area. about eighty nine, ninety. So yeah, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I skipped ahead a whole decade. Um, yeah, so that. That was pretty amazing, though, for a film at that time to have one person playing two characters. Uh, that was pretty good, but I still think Dead Ringers, it's kind of a bit dry and boring. I guess that's the point. The characters are supposed to be kind of dry and boring. I mean, but 
Uh, a lot of the viewer fans of Dead Ringers because they were expecting another video drone, another scanners, another, you know. Yeah, the fly, yeah. And the psychodrama, psychosexual drama about two twins that can't get off unless they're there together. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and then, I don't know, um, trying to think ahead. Uh, I didn't the really care. When he really... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I didn't really care for uh, Naked Lunch. That was, you were going to say the 90s is when he really started to to go in a different direction again. Or, I like Naked Lunch. Oh, I don't care for it. No, I, I like, I have a copy of the novel. I like, I like the book, but I don't know. It's one of those things, though, like Stephen King always says, once you sell the rights to your novel, then just because you don't like the movie version of your novel doesn't mean that your novel doesn't still exist, you know? So yeah, I can, yeah, I can still enjoy the... But yeah, no- I mean, yeah, he did some interesting films that pretty much... Didn't do as good as he thought, like uh, M. Butterfly. God, that one is shit. Uh, we, we, uh, we, Most people we even forget that one exists. We, we argued about this on the show a few weeks ago. I like M. Butterfly. I, I don't think that's a bad movie. It, it doesn't have that... It doesn't have that Cronenberg feel to it, but I think it's a good movie. Yeah. Let's see. He did Naked Lunch, which I liked. Uh, Crash, which I thought was boring. Well, Crash, yeah. But we were we were just talking about J.G. Ballard when we were talking about High Rise, and yeah. J.G. Ballard, yeah, J.G. Ballard also wrote Crash. Um, yeah, I think Crash is okay. I don't think it deserves as much praise as it got it you know winning all those it won a ton of awards but I think I really think that it was just one of those movies that came along in a time where cinema was so safe that something like that was it was shocking enough to win awards you know what I mean like People were looking for something shocking and enticing, and I I really think that's why Crash won the awards that it did. Um, it's beautifully shot, but it's poorly acted, and and it's editing, not dirty enough. Yeah, the editing leaves something it to be desired. Should have been a lot more sleazy or grimier, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was just saying. The editing leaves something to be desired. Like, um, yeah, it 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 could have been, yeah. I mean, it had the potential to go full on like solo disturbing. You know, they could have gone really far with it. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it? 
I think they had an original version of it that was X rated, and then they cut it. They they trimmed it down for an R rating. I I might not be. Yeah. Correct. The X rated is not. The X rated cut is the only one on video. Right. Yeah. And even yeah, the X-rated I, cut is not as dirty as, you know. When you're talking yeah. about obsession, you expect it to be sweaty, ugly, grimy. Right. Yeah. So, the only other, uh, I mean, the only other Cronenberg films that I wanted to mention just quickly before we move on to whoever's next. Uh, I really liked Spider. That was an interesting, uh, interesting flick of his. Uh, I I thought it was interesting. Uh, definitely did not have the same. Uh, this is this is as he started to move away from his body horror stuff, but then. We had the the two pack of a history of violence and Eastern promises. Now those were like like we were saying before, uh, you know, uh, directors who take on their they or they do their own take on something that's already been done to death. Uh, history of violence and Eastern yeah. promises were both gangster films. But man, were they good! I mean, those were good flicks. Well, there's only one reason the history and violence is good, and that's because it had Stephen McCaddy in it. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> that's the only reason. And we're forgetting when Cronenberg uh, tried, and he basically made a bad rip off of one of his own movies. And even though I like it, it's still. Existence is still a bad rip off of Videodrome. There's no way around it. Yeah, I I don't care for Existence. No, that doesn't doesn't do anything for me. Not only is it yeah, not only is it a watered down version of a film that he already made, but I think the special effects are bad. I think the acting is bad and. Like we were talking about before, it's one of those movies that can pull me right out of the narrative just based on the fashion and the hairstyles and things like that. Yeah. We need Doesn't to do, do that show. We need to do that show one day. Movies that are too much of their decade to too much of their decade. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We should. And it you know, the weird thing is to flip that is like, you know, like movies that are too much of their decade. And then, but we watch movies like Boogie Nights or, you know, uh, I don't know. That's the only one I can come up off the top of my head. But, you know, like a movie like Boogie Nights where you're like, well, this movie was filmed in the 90s, but it takes place in the 70s. And you're like, the hairstyles and the clothing do not distract you at all because you're told, you know, from the get-go, okay, this movie takes place in the 70s, cool. But, yeah, sometimes going back and watching an old movie that you know was actually filmed in the 70s, you know, and you're like, 
I don't know. Eh, this is this, this is just taking me away from the story. No. No. And speaking of, there's one director whose popularity goes like that, and that would be one of your picks and one of my faves, too. That's good old Abel Ferrara. There's a hell of a yeah. lot of difference between his early 70s and 80s stuff and his 90s stuff. Yeah. So what's your favorite of his movies? Probably uh, Bad Lieutenant. Yeah, I would say Bad Lieutenant, too. But I've been doing a lot of talking uh, this show, so why don't you talk about what you like about Bad Lieutenant? I love the fact that how it shows an irredeemable scumbag. And even at the end, he doesn't get redemption. There's a lot of people like, oh, he went to God. He's redeemed. No, he's not. He's still the same scumbag as the first in the movie. He just did done a good deed. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. So what was the first yeah, Oh, I was just going to say, no, keep talking about Bad Lieutenant if you want. Yeah. Oh, no, the first film he ever did, uh, Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, I was going to ask what's the first movie of his you ever saw, but now I guess I know. Uh, let's see. Uh, first one that I ever saw. <laughs> Probably Driller uh, Killer. Yeah. Driller Killer was the first one for me. Um, as I've talked about I mean, several you get times. You get the war, you're a team, and then you see that cover of the guy getting his head drilled in. You're like, I'm there. Yeah. As I've mentioned then many you go, times what before. Is this? <laughs> as I've mentioned on the show many times before. I worked at a video store when I was in high school uh, into college. And, uh, yeah, every every six months my boss would tell us to pull old movies off the shelf and put them in a table out front, put them on a table out front uh, for sale. And uh, so, of course, me and all the other people who worked at the video store would get first pick of what we wanted. And even though I wasn't aware of it at the time, I always had a thing for big box movies, you know. Um, whenever there were big box movies that went up for sale, I'd grab them. And that's kind of how I built my VHS collection. And uh, Driller Killer is one that I still have in a big box VHS. But another Abel Ferrer movie that I have in a big box uh, VHS is Miss 45. And I think Driller Killer was the first one I saw. Bad Lieutenant is my favorite, just like you. So we're two for two on that. But I think Miss 45 is my favorite Abel, Abel Ferrer movie. God, yeah. After watching Abel Ferrer's 70s and 80s movies, you won't want to go to New York City. 
Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, um, I think probably one one of the only movies that he ever directed. Well, I like King of New York, but again, that leans into what we were talking about before when we were talking about the dead zone. I feel like King of New York is a really good movie, but I don't particularly care for Christopher Walken's performance in it. It seems like another one of those, like, I I don't know. There's something about those performances from the Dead Zone and, uh, I mean, into uh, King of New York. It, there just seems like there's something about those performances that just seems so wooden to me. I don't care for them. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, but King of New York is a really good film. I do like it. But uh, I just don't care. It, yeah. You know what's in this cup? What's in there? But Root beer. Mm-hmm. No, man, mm-hmm. some things I won't do. <laughs> right? But uh, if I had to, if I had to go out on a limb, now this goes along with something that I've said before on the show. Uh, everyone knows Tarantino is my favorite director. I think Pulp Fiction is my favorite movie, but I think Jackie Brown is his best film, uh, just in terms of direction, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of have that attitude with every director. You know, my favorite uh, Abel Ferrer movie is Bad Lieutenant. But if we're talking about direction, acting, lighting, et cetera, et cetera, I think his best movie is The Funeral. Yeah, his 90s period. Like I said, I divide... uh... Abel's work in the two periods, his 70s and 80s stuff, well, his early period, which is 70s and 80s, and his 90s stuff. He came back with a vengeance in the 90s. I mean, King of New York, Bad Lieutenant, Body Snatchers, uh, Funeral. Now, Uh, how do you feel that weird one with Harvey Keitel where he played the director who turns into Abel through halfway through the movie. <laughs> uh, how how do you feel how do you feel about um the uh the sequel to um Bad Lieutenant? Uh, We're in New Orleans. I love it. Fucking her yeah. and Nicholas Cage together. Goddamn straight. Yeah. Actually, it is in the sequel. It's uh, the original title of the movie is Port of Call New Orleans. But the mm-hmm. guy right. who produced the movie had the right to the bad lieutenant name, so he just slapped the name on it. It's such a crazy movie, though, because. When you think about Werner Herzog and Nicolas Cage, you think about two of the craziest people in the world somehow 
they reined each other in to make a really good movie. Like, neither one of them seems to be particularly insane. I, I mean, at the time, you know. I mean, Herzog is... Herzog isn't really crazy. He's kind of existential, but you know, you've heard him talk enough times yeah. to know that he he's kind of a weirdo. And we've all seen Nicolas Cage freak out on more than one occasion in a movie, you know, yeah. where the director can't really rein him in. I'm thinking Herzog was probably calm enough, even with his, you know, yeah. rambling insanity that he kind of kept... Uh, <laughs> Cage under control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What the fuck is a doing in my crime scene? Ain't no iguana. What the fuck? <laughs> That's a fucking iguana. He didn't have the iguana going, please release me, let me go. <laughs> I've always imagined. Uh-huh. I've always I've always imagined you to be uh uh to be like a lizard. Like I know you have dogs, but you've got a lizard too, right? No. <laughs> no lizards. No. All right. Okay. If you but, say so, yeah. I'll be. Because 
at the time that I became aware of his films, I was more into like the Scorsese gangster stuff, uh, you know, like uh, Mean Streets and and that, uh, you know, Taxi Driver uh, or, you know, The Godfather. I think my favorite Sergio Leone film is Once Upon a Time in America. Final answer. That's a great one. I was sort of behind it. I was behind it. And I went in and I'm like, oh, I love to do the Young. Wow, Charles Bronson. I love Charles Bronson. And I walked in the face and I was like, and love the first night time in the West. Now here, oh, that's that. I think I would have to watch Once Upon a Time in the West again. I haven't seen it for a long time. And I think probably at the time, I just wasn't that interested in... Um, westerns, but you know, I actually went back and started watching a lot of old westerns after my grandfather passed away because he was a big fan of westerns, and so I started watching a lot of his old uh VHS tapes and DVDs and just kind of catching up on Westerns that never really held any interest for me when I was younger. Um, so I, I bet if I went and watched once upon a time in the West, I would have more interest in it now than I did when I was younger. Um, but also the only other thing I really have to say about, uh, Sergio Leone is, uh, again, the connection between him and Tarantino, uh, Inio Morcone. Inio Morcone. Is that how you say his name? Who did what? What was the name of Tarantino Blast film? Once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Upon a time.
how they wanted with Frank's character or how to get into it. And then when he was walking on the set for his intro scene, we only pushed the player on a tape recorder with that music on, and he's like, I get it now. <laughs> right? Uh, I think uh, it's kind of funny because uh, Morricone won an Oscar for, I think it was uh, The Hateful Eight. I think that yeah. was what he wanted. He also yeah. did the music. He also did the music for, I think Django Unchained, and either Django Unchained or Kill Bill. He did some original music for, and said he would never work with Tarantino again because Tarantino doesn't know how music cues are supposed to work. <laughs> so it's yeah. ironic that he. Has- it's ironic that he won an Oscar for a Tarantino film. Owen, <laughs> Owen, before we do that, I want to tell you something that I mixed up that's going to blow your mind. All right. Hit me up, baby. Windows. Hates being a radio operator. Hates being here. Can't wait. Sorry. Wrong thing. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you? I'm right here. I'm looking through here trying to find something. You what? I can't hear you. I'm looking for something here. It's on the... This will be worth it. Well, I I heard your little track there that was was that it or is there more to it no that wasn't that was the wrong one oh (laughs) here we go That was the same thing that 
and the hateful eight scene mixed together. Right. So, and we're moving on to Tarantino, but yeah, the scene and the so, some of the songs that he used for the hateful eight was unused tracks from the theme. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, which I thought was really cool because, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to explain to people who aren't really like movie fans, but, and if you're listening to this podcast and you're not a movie fan, then I don't know why you're listening to our podcast. But anyway, uh, we welcome we welcome all. We welcome all. No, we're we're, we're welcoming. But uh, yeah, when I I went to see the Hateful Eight, the first thing I thought is, well, this is basically the thing, you know, like like a Western remake of the thing. Um, so yeah, and then it was really neat that you know he donated some of his unused music uh, to the soundtrack. That was cool, for sure. Um, he did a couple of uh, original tracks too, enough to get him the Oscar. Yeah, right. So now we're gonna talk about Tarantino, huh? Yeah. How did you first run into Reservoir Dogs? Me, I sent a couple of reviews in video store magazines. I didn't even know who he was. I was, I didn't even have the hype or all that. I just read some good reviews of it in video store magazine. I worked at the video store. I worked at the video store when I was in high school. And this is, this is going to be a kind of a funny story. Uh, I worked at the video store when I was in high school and I don't know if you've ever seen the VHS version of Reservoir Dogs, but if you remember the early nineties, and all of the shitty uh, artwork that they slapped on video, you know, VHS tapes to try to get you to rent them or buy them. Uh, yeah, the VHS copy of Reservoir Dogs looks terrible. It looks like a movie you would never want to watch. And so we got a copy of it in the video store. We had one copy of it in the video store. And... It was on the new release rack. I just threw it up without a care in the world, you know, no thoughts of watching it because I was like, yep, here's another stupid direct-to-video movie uh, that I don't give a shit about. And uh, nobody rented it. It sat there for weeks. And then I was talking to my friend uh, Sean Ryan, and he said, hey, have you seen this movie Reservoir Dogs yet? And I was like, no, we have a copy of it at the video store, but no one's rented it. It looks like it's a piece of shit. And he was like, no, dude, you got to watch this movie. So since I got free rentals from the video store, what did I have to lose, right? I just grabbed it off the shelf one night when I was heading out for the for the night, you know, for the evening. And uh, so Reservoir Dogs was the first Tarantino movie I ever saw, but I never would have watched it if uh, my friend hadn't told me that it was a good movie. So just just based purely on the artwork on the box, 
I actually still have a copy of uh, of Reservoir Dogs on VHS, and I still cringe every time I look at the tacky uh, box art. It 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 doesn't look like a movie that I would have ever rented, but hey, I did. And the now one that I've seen is the one with the actual theatrical VHS with the theatrical poster on it. Yeah, that's nope. That's not what I have. <laughs> Uh, oh, you probably mine, have one of the live tapes then. Yeah, mine has Steve Buscemi and Harvey Keitel just pointing guns at each other from that scene. Uh, so what was your first uh, Tarantino movie? Reservoir Dogs, of course. Yeah. Right. I just started seeing the reviews, and I finally got to see it, and I was just sitting there with my jaw dropped. Right. But mine was a little bit after the hype, and then they would, and they put out the second edition with the award festival award winning movie. You know, you right? That VHS version, the one with the theatrical poster and the hype. Yeah. But so yeah, you that's what most people don't know is that. Reservoir Dogs really was shot as and intended to be, as you put it, a shitty DTV movie that no one would ever fucking see. Right? And that's and that's weird too because uh the history of Reservoir Dogs starts with uh the Sundance Film Festival. Um because uh, Robert Redford used to bring out aspiring writers, directors, and actors out to the wherever. I, I, I'm not exactly sure where they do Sundance. Uh, it's not something I've ever followed. Tell you right, Colorado. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. So he would bring writer, you know, uh, writers, directors, actors, people who wanted to be part of the industry, uh, he would actually bring them out there so they could do workshopping and meet other people in their industry. And that's where Quentin Tarantino actually finished the script for Reservoir Dogs. And that's where he met or was somehow connected to Harvey Keitel, who invested a lot of money into getting uh, Reservoir Dogs made. Who directed so, uh, I mean, Tulane Blacktop? Yeah, who? Yeah, who did direct Tulane Blacktop? Uh, it's whoever directed that that was the connection. Yeah, right. Who but was that? He was a Monty Hellman. Yeah, right. Monty yeah. Hellman was a friend of Harvey Keitel's, and then. Monty Hellman got a hold of the script and was producing it for live entertainment, and he liked it so much that he showed it to Harvey Keitel, and then, boom, it took off from there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's pretty much outside of Harvey Keitel. Everybody else was unknown over here. Yeah. No, for sure. Like, yeah, all of those... 
all of those actors who were in Reservoir Dogs like blew up big afterwards. And yeah, aside from Harvey Keitel, most of them hadn't really ever been in anything that was notable. You know, that's cool. Um, and what's funny so is Reservoir Dogs was originally one of the stories from Pulp Fiction, which would have explained what Jules and Uh, Samuel Jackson's character was looking for in the apartment. Oh, yeah, Jules and Vincent, yeah. Um, yeah, that's what they yeah. were looking for, was uh, those diamonds yeah. from Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. They, a lot of, uh, a lot of online theorists still claim that they think that's what's in the briefcases, the diamonds from Re- Reservoir Dogs, which it, it may or may not be. I mean, well, you know, they... Well, the fact because uh, both of them have said that uh, Reservoir Dogs was one of the stories from Pulp Fiction that they uh, stretched out the feature length. Because right. it was the one they could do the cheapest. You know, they're all in the warehouse. Five guys in the warehouse. Okay, we can do that cheap. Yeah. Plus, they they talk a lot about, I mean, all of the Tarantino movies are intertwined by, you know, characters who are either sons, daughters, yeah. parents, grandparents, you know, all that. And you know that uh, John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction is related to Michael Madsen's character in Reservoir Dogs, so... Yeah. You know. Yeah, and they're, they're uh, Alabama from True Romance was dating... Uh, Harvey Keitel's character from Reservoir Dogs. Speaking of which, uh, if we're talking about uh, Tarantino movies that Tarantino didn't direct, which we are mentioning True Romance, True Romance is the best Tarantino movie that Tarantino did not direct. I mean... Tony Scott is a better director when he uh, wasn't making peak to Hollywood crap that people give him credit for. I don't think anyone right. could have done true romance as good as he did. No way. I mean, Tarantino could have done a really good version of it, but it wouldn't have been like that. It wouldn't have been like like Tony Scott's version. No way. No. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't see Tarantino hiring uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gary Oldman to play Black Pimp. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's the matter with you? You think it's White Boy Day? Is it White Boy Day? Yeah. No one told me it's White Boy Day. <laughs> <laughs> I see that at work all the time. It's probably going to get me fired one of these days. Whenever, and whenever I'm sitting. What <laughs> actor made their first appearance in a Tarantino film in True Romance? They ended up being in four or five of Tarantino's films. Samuel L. Jackson, baby. Jackson, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I know that Samuel L. Jackson has a blink and you'll miss it cameo in True Romance, but yeah. That was definitely, yeah. But um, the film that's more important is the film that. He got half of the budget from 
four reservoir dogs from, and that's uh, from dusk till dawn. Yeah. And Harvey Kurtzman hired him to write the script, and he took all the money that he got from doing that and put it back into the movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't dislike From Dusk Till Dawn. I mean, like I said, when we're talking about movies that Tarantino wrote but he didn't direct, I mean, so we've got From Dusk Till Dawn, we've got True Romance, we've got Natural Born Killers, but I don't know. Uh, Tarantino just has an eye for just the way he frames shots that just really that I enjoy a lot. I I don't know. There's just something aesthetically pleasing about it. So that's, that's really my thing with Tarantino. And if he wants to sell scripts to other people, I, I have no problem with that. I don't think that from dusk till dawn or natural born killers or, uh, you know, uh, just don't think any of those movies look as nice to me as his films. There's something that's oh, like just almost. Don't worry. When it comes to natural born killers, I don't want to talk much about it because I'm saving that bad boy for our uh, movies that are too much of their own decade. <laughs> <laughs> right. You don't right? get more yeah. 90s than. Well, that's one thing I'd like to mention with the way the killers dress in uh, Reservoir and Pulp Fiction is they're so out of time, you really can't waste the time of Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that's even, I think that's even particular to Tarantino's films that are set in particular times, even his westerns are kind of like, okay, well, it's a Western, but, you know, if he doesn't tell you what year it is, you don't know. You know, he kind of still does the same uh, uh, hipster vibe, you know? Like, it's just kind of like hipster, uh, you know, hipster slavery, hipster Nazism, you know, like, he, he kind of just runs with that, like, yeah. So yeah. this might not, this might not really be what's happening because this might not really be the year, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. But so. when Pulp Fiction came out, God damn, was, was were, were we all hyped for that? We were just waiting for it. Yeah, I. I could not, yeah, like, after I saw Pulp Fiction, it was one of those movies that I went in the afternoon with a friend, we watched it, and then we went out, got, you know, took a piss, got some popcorn, soda, and candy, paid, and went back in and watched it again. Like, yeah, that Pulp Fiction. I got a better story than you. Okay, tell me. I seen it in Knoxville, Tennessee. 
Quentin Tarantino so you is want to from. talk about people popping whenever something is mentioned. <laughs> it was like at being a sporting event. <laughs> Your father got this watch in a general store in Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> but was Quentin Tarantino at the at the screening? No, it was at the very first one. No. <laughs> no. Was Johnny Knoxville there? Pop. It's not going overtime because we're like popping for everything. Even if you didn't like the movie that much, you won't get caught up in the way. Right. <laughs> uh, well, the only other story I have about. Uh, Seeing a Tarantino movie in the theater was, uh, I mean, I've seen all of his movies in the theater, but on Christmas Day, when Jackie Brown came out, uh, I was, I had just started seeing this girl, and so I wanted to go see Jackie Brown, uh, on Christmas Day, because that 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 was the day it was released, and I wanted to see it in the theater on opening day. So I went to the theater with this girl, and we were the only two people in the theater. So we're watching Jackie Brown, and coming off of the rush of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction back-to-back, you know, I was really excited. I was I was falling in love with Tarantino. I really wanted to see his new movie. This is this is how much of a movie nerd that I am. That this girl kept trying to like grab my and make out with me while we were watching the movie, and I kept being like, "Hey, come on, this is this, this Tarantino movie. Come on, this is Quentin Tarantino. Come on, I I gotta watch this movie. We can do this later." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people forget that his first, even the one he didn't like, really came out right in a row. It was like, it was like, that's our dog. A year later, romance. And then, Pulp Fiction. Natural Born Killer. Jackie Brown was like, almost like he almost had one a year. There. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Jackie Brown. Wow. Oh. I don't know. Maybe five or six years. He's been on a lot Can of times on the Rolling Thunder, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he. He uh, did the he like started the Rolling Thunder uh, imprint so he could release movies that I I guess kind of, well kind of like the same thing we were talking about earlier with uh, something weird video so he could release 
old films that had been lost or stolen, right? Like, yeah, that was his thing. Then he finally came back around 2000 with uh, Kill Bill 1 and 2, which after all that time, we're like, does this still happen? Does this still happen? Does this still happen? (laughs) Right? Oh, God. (laughs) Did you have that brief, brief breath of relief after part one was over? Like, He did. I mean, it was a long time. He's the only one of the 90s generation that survived the 90s. Well, Kevin Smith. I mean. You know. <laughs> right. Didn't he take some time off after that? Because what was next after Kill Bill? Uh, He didn't do another movie until he did Death Proof. And yeah, that was like 2000. Wasn't it Glorious Bastards before Death Proof? Or after? Uh, Nope. No, after. That was after. Yeah. No, I he like did death proof. Grindhouse. I my favorite part of Grindhouse though is the fake trailers. I don't really like either one of the movies that much. I don't really like Death Proof that much, and I don't really like Planet Terror that much. They're both kind of just kind of. Michael B. God damn it. Michael Payne yeah. had the best line in Death Proof. Don't give yeah. him a gun. Give him a gun. Give him all the guns. <laughs> all right. No. Uh, and then yeah, I, I mean, Glorious Bastards, which was great. Yeah, I, yeah. Inglorious Bastards came out after Death Proof. And yeah. No, yeah. I... No, I I definitely like Inglorious Bastards. I mean that that movie's got some great performances in it, and it kind of it kind of turned a corner for Tarantino. I mean, we think about him uh, coming up through all of these different uh, films, but all of a sudden, Inglorious Bastards, he's got Brad Pitt in a movie, you know, which. You can think about all of the people that he had in his films coming up towards Inglorious Bastards, and you're like, oh, well, yeah, these people are all big stars. But they weren't big stars when he put them in his movies. They they kind yeah. of, you know, they, they were, they were at, the, at the bottom of the ladder, and being in his movies, uh, you know, accelerated their careers in glorious bastards when you see brad pitt in there you're like oh holy shit now this guy's got some clout you know tarantino's got some clout in hollywood if he can get brad pitt in a movie you know 
And then when Django Unchained came along and he had, uh, uh, what's his face? Yeah. I want to say. Yeah. 
you and I did a whole uh, uh, episode where we did a live viewing of it. And, uh, but this, this goes towards, you know, more towards what I was saying is now we're at a point in Tarantino's career where like you can seriously, I mean, come on, man, like Brad Pitt and Matt Damon in a movie together by directed by a guy Damon, who started no, out. No, Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Why do I keep thinking Matt Damon? That's I, I, I was thinking you, Matt cause Damon. Because you, you love the Damon, man. You love the Damon. Uh, I, I do, yeah. Uh, oh, I'll take a mouthful of Damon any day. <laughs> ah, I'm thirsty for some Damon right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, those are some yeah. of our favorite directors. We really can't say all of them because it'd be like we'd be here all day. Yeah, I know. Well, but I was the yeah. we spoke to Ark, uh, Steel Helmet, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What about you? Yeah, I would say if there are any movies that we talked about tonight that you have not seen for crying out loud, you got to watch Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. There's no doubt about that. True Romance is another one, and yeah, like you said, uh, yeah, um, uh, Bad Lieutenant, yeah, for sure. I mean, I can't, I, think fi- it was I can't remember my life I ever felt sorry for Tim Burton. Yeah, having Ed felt- Wood come out the same day as uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've never felt bad for Tim Burton. <laughs> I don't know. No, I like it's some. It's actually good. It's just one of those. that's like, please move my movie. Please move. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, I do. No, really, I, can I, you think of not... two movies that were gunning for the same audience? No. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, I I don't dislike Tim Burton. I just, you know, I kind of grew out of his nonsense from when I was younger. But I will give him credit that he has kind of grown up a little bit. And his movies are, not all of his movies, but some of his movies are geared more towards adult audiences nowadays, like Big Eyes and uh, Big Eyes. (laughs) I mean... He's not completely like lost in his little world anymore, but I don't know. We'll we'll bitch about we'll bitch about Tim Burton on another episode, but for now, I have to sign off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, good night everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>